welcome to this edition of NC Talks. I'm Sharon Salt, Senior Editor of Neurocentral, and in this podcast, we will be speaking with Gavin Giovannoni from Barts and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry to discuss recent advances in the treatment landscape for multiple sclerosis. Gavin speaks about the biggest challenges surrounding the development of therapies for multiple sclerosis, including what advancements have been made in disease-modifying therapies. So, please could you introduce yourself and tell us more about your role? Hi, I'm uh, Gavin Giovannoni. I'm the Professor of Neurology and I'm based at uh, Bath's and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry and we're affiliated with the Bath's Health NHS Trust uh, in the East End of London. I lead a large academic uh, group and we spend most of our time thinking about and doing research uh, into multiple sclerosis and we have a research program that covers you know, basic science, translational in terms of animal models, biomarkers and we do quite a lot of uh, clinical trials as well. And this feeds into our clinical practice because we do have a large uh, MS practice at the Royal London Hospital. What inspired you to work in the field of MS? What inspired me to work in the field of MS? Uh, Good question. I probably got interested in neurology way back in medical school when I started doing internal medicine and got exposed to a very inspiring teacher on the general medical wards. And that probably was the reason why I did neurology. In terms of MS, it was probably one patient that inspired me to do multiple sclerosis. I always had an interest in immunology, and I spent a large amount of time clocking and presenting this patient and went into quite in-depth research. So when it came to taking time out of my training and doing research, the natural thing for me to do was to uh, go into MS research, and I applied all over the world, so I was at that stage training in Johannesburg, South Africa, and I got offers to do MS research in quite a few places, and I eventually took the one in London, based at the National Hospital at Queen Square, simply because my wife at the time was working for a, a multinational advertising agency that agreed to transfer to the London office. So the reason why I ended up in London was circumstance, to be honest with you, and uh, never looked back. That's great. That's really interesting. And in your opinion, what are the biggest challenges surrounding the development of therapies for MS? The biggest challenges for developing treatments in MS? I think the current challenge is that we seem to have accepted the status quo. And, you know, there are alternative hypotheses out there about multiple sclerosis. And the one current hypothesis is that MS is not all about inflammation. There are additional aspects driving the disease and the field is dominated by the autoimmune dogma where the current dogma states that inflammation, particularly focal inflammation, is the uh, is MS and by suppressing and getting rid of that inflammation we sort the disease out but it's quite clear when you dig down uh, these people aren't being controlled, you know, you may render them free of disease activity, in other words people with multiple sclerosis aren't having relapses or focal MRI activity, but the majority of them are still getting worse over time. And I kind of try to use this the, the, the adjective smoldering MS, and I think the biggest hurdle we're having is getting the field to accept that there's more to be done, and we, we need to create add-on treatments, and particularly combination therapy. So that's kind of the biggest hassle we're having right now, and that's not only getting the community, but getting funders and the pharmaceutical industry to buy into the combination therapy model. Other um, things is that people begin to have accepted that once people get more advanced disease, in other words, they end up in wheelchairs, they're beyond help. 
and so there hasn't been a focus on advanced MS. Can we actually modify or slow down the progression or worsening of MS in people who are wheelchair users? And there's a real good reason for doing that to protect upper limb function. You know, when you are wheelchair bound, your hands and arms become your legs, and you need your arm and hand function for independence. And so we should be doing trials, more trials in more advanced disease to try and protect upper limb function. And the other thing is I, just, I still don't think we treat MS quickly and early enough. Uh, it's just getting the community to adopt treatment strategies very early uh, so that we can actually protect the brain and spinal cord from damage. And so we have a, um, a, a general feeling in the MS community that we should, you know, slow escalation is the way we go and uh, uh, the, the adoption of more aggressive active treatment approaches need to be promoted. And finally, we're not having enough investment. We don't get enough investment in research into preventing MS. I think MS is a preventable disease. Uh, at the moment, we're seeing an epidemic, uh, an increase in the incidence of the disease where it's been measured. That's new cases. And we're also seeing an increase in prevalence driven by new cases, but also in, um, people with established disease living longer and doing much better in the long term. So we've got a real problem at the moment and you know we should be using a public health approach to try and focus on preventable risk factors or risk factors that can be modified and they require a large number of modifiable risk factors that really need to be addressed at, uh, at the public health level for MS prevention. So a lot to still be done in MS. So what advancements have been made in disease modifying therapies for MS? So I think there's three waves of innovation. The first was the uh, initial injectable therapies, that's interferon and clitoromacetate. I mean, those weren't immunosuppressive therapies in the true sense of the word. They were immunomodulatory, and they were really of moderate efficacy, and they got the field going. But since then, we've had two waves of innovation. We've had uh, oral therapies, mainly targeting the immune system in terms of immunosuppression, and then we've had a, a whole tranche of biological therapies. These are mainly monoclonal antibodies that are really uh, very high efficacy. Um, uh, they've come with much more risks associated with the adverse event profile as well as uh, potential monitoring requirements. Uh, and then we've had some uh, new uh, oral treatments that I would classify in the third wave because they work similarly to some of the monoclonals in terms of uh, applying the strategy of immune reconstitution therapy. So we have three ways of innovation, but within that is there are hidden strategies. So the one strategy would be maintenance treatment where you and suppress or modify the immune system long term and you have to stay on those drugs but for me the most exciting thing is the development of immune reconstitution treatments where you use short courses of therapy and the aim is to deplete the immune system and hopefully kill the so-called autoimmune cells that drive MS and then allow the immune system to recover function and when they, uh, patients recover the immune system function MS remains in remission long term one is uh, oral cladribine this is a small a small molecule, which has advantages because it uh, is CNS penetrant, so it uh, depletes the immune system in a semi-selective way, uh, targets mainly uh, adaptive T and B lymphocytes, and within that it's mainly targeting the B lymphocytes. So we don't see some of the complications we see with the cell lysis syndromes like alemtuzumab, so there's no infusion reactions. So, um, you know, these, and these are high-efficacy drug therapies. So what we're beginning to see now is the emergence of treatment strategies uh, where you can use high-efficacy uh, high treatments without much uh, adverse events or intolerance issues, and the monitoring requirements have, have gone down. So from a healthcare system, and these treatments are really uh, uh, changing the way we use 
uh, disease modified therapy. So all very exciting. The problem I find, though, is getting the uh, wide AMS community to adopt these new treatment strategies. You know, um, people have a, um, I don't know why, but they just don't buy into immune reconstitution therapies. You know, I think the concept to them is difficult. But we're working on it. That's great. So what is unique about Mavenclad? Um, what are the benefits of this treatment, and why should neurologists choose it? ease of use. It's, it's, it's the short courses. So it's basically tw- up to 20 t- days of treatment over a two-year period and the drug's licensed for a period of uh, four years in, at least in the UK. We, uh, and most people are in remission at the end of four years. So it's remarkable that just such short courses of therapy give you such long-term uh, results. And in terms of its mode of action, it's a really smart drug. It's actually based on targeting a very, very interesting biochemical pathway that makes it target the adaptive TMB lymphocytes. So um, the reason why it was developed was based on observations of an inborn error of metabolism. There were children with severe combined immune deficiency syndrome, and these children were found to have a mutation in an enzyme called adenosine deaminase. And this enzyme is responsible for breaking down purine analogs. And these purine analogs, if they're not broken down, are toxic to cells. Uh, and these kids are born without BNT lymphocytes. So the idea was, could we take a purine uh, and modify it to be resistant to break down adenosine deaminase and then target TMB lymphocytes? And this is what happened by Colson and Boitlet, these scripts back in the 70s. They designed a series of compounds, and, one, and the compound was uh, chlorodeoxyadenosine, which is uh, two chlorodeoxyadenosine, which is cladribine. And it does what it, what the Imbonera does. So you take this um, small molecule, it's inactive, it's got to get transported into cells, and then it gets phosphorylated by an enzyme called DCK, and that's the other quirk of nature. Um, the enzyme that phosphorylates it to trap it inside cells is, is highly expressed in lymphocytes only. So it leaves the rest of the body free of being exposed to the drug. And uh, even in the lymphocyte compartment, the B cells are more sensitive to it. So it targets, uh, depletes B cells by about 90% uh, and T cells by about 50%. And it leaves the innate cells relatively intact. So it has a really interesting depletion profile that other therapies don't have. And the other thing is it kills cells by um, apoptosis mechanisms. What happens is the activated uh, cladribine inhibits DNA polymerase uh, and we think it probably works via mitochondrial DNA uh, mechanism so it triggers apoptotic mechanisms and these cells die by apoptosis and instead of being lysed and releasing their contents they get phagocytosed by cells of the reticular endothelial system so we don't see a cell lysis syndrome that we see when we use um, uh, cell lysis monoclonal antibodies like we have with adamtuzumab or anti-CD20 and then the repopulation kinetics are very different. So the, the B cells are probably depleted quickest and fastest, and the T cells less so. And then when the B cells repopulate, they come back in the presence of T cells because T cells haven't been depleted that much. And so we haven't seen some of the sec- we haven't seen secondary autoimmunity, which is a complication of some of the immune reconstitution therapies like alemtuzumab. So that's the main problem with alemtuzumab is the secondary autoimmunity that occurs in about half the patients over a five to seven year period. So uh, cladribine doesn't do that. Uh, and so it's got all these features that put it into the same class as alentuzumab, but without the uh, side effect profile. Uh, the other 
a tribute that I always talk about with cladribine is that because it's a small molecule, it penetrates the central nervous system, and we find about 25% of the levels in the spinal fluid as we do in the peripheral blood. That's important because we now begin to realize that the B-cell follicles these, um, in, the, in the meninges around the brains of people with multiple sclerosis are possibly driving the progressive component of MS. So there's almost certain that cladribine targets these cells into the central nervous system. So it doesn't only work in the periphery, but also in the central nervous system. And so that's another uh, attribute that may be very, very important in terms of its mode of action. And like all immune, immune reconstitution therapies, um, it's in and out of the body quite quickly. It's got a very short half-life. Uh, and therefore, for your woman wanting to start to extend their families, you know, the drug's out the system very quickly. And what is the need for Mavenclad, and which patients benefit most from it? Well, I think the need for Mavenclad, for oral cladribine, is great. The majority of our patients going on to it are failing you know, existing treatments and um, get on to it second line or third line. So the uh, ideal patient would be the, the, you know, the very active, naive patient where you're worried about long-term complications or patients failing you know, platform therapies, you know, getting on to a second line. Now that Maven Cloud is launched and available in more than 70 countries across the world, including both Europe and the USA, can you elaborate a little bit on the real-world experience we are seeing with Maven Cloud? Yeah, so the real-world experience is exactly what we saw in the trials. I think people are getting pleasantly surprised uh, when they are using oral cladribine in real life, how easy it is to use, um, and the efficacy is holding up. Uh, it's, uh, and we are, are, we, are we beginning to see other advantages of the drug? So let's give you an example. When you start using it in real life, um, one of the things that may be important is vaccines, particularly uh, against emerging infections uh, or for foreign travel, for example. And because it's an immune reconstitution therapy, once your immune system comes back, vaccines are not contraindicated. So, you know, in any, uh, we've had several of our patients who've actually chosen uh, oral cladribine simply because they need to be vaccinated for travel reasons, work reasons. Cladribine is not a contraindication in the long term for vaccines. The other thing we begin to find is when you start running into people who've had second, uh, three, four, five drugs and they're getting older, um, a big worry is long-term immune suppression. Uh, and cladribine is actually a very, I, w I would say, mild immunosuppressive at that. And the immunosuppressions are really only front-loaded when the initial B and T lymphocytes are depleted. Uh, and so the fact that your immune system recovers means you're not long-term immunodepleted. But I'm also beginning to realize that as soon as you start using it in a large number of patients, you begin to see how it changes your uh, uh, healthcare utilization. I think the real advantage of cladribine compared to some of the other therapies is our healthcare perspective. It's freeing up our MS nurses to do other things with their time. Uh, and so, the, you know, they like using the drug a lot. So it's got quite a lot of interesting attributes um, that are, are changing the profile of how we use it in real life um, based on economic reasons at a healthcare system. And I think from, from a patient perspective, it's convenient for them. They've got very little burden in terms of taking the drug. Adverse events is very minor. So, yeah, a large, you know, the real-life data, I think, is uh, going to be slightly different to the trial because I think the populations will be slightly different. But in terms of efficacy, it's much what, we, it's much what we've seen in, in, uh, in the trials. It's a highly effective therapy 
with the majority of people treated going into um, uh, remission and staying there for years three and four as well. Perfect. And looking to the future, what advances are you most excited to see from the field? Um, I think what's going to happen is, is we're going to start using our drugs a little bit differently to what we're using in the past. I think we're going to be doing sequential treatments deliberately because a small proportion of patients will have recurrent disease activity. And I think so we got, we're going to start thinking about true induction maintenance protocols. And there's some ideas floating around about how we do those trials now. Um, the kind of agents you want to use going forward are drugs that work against B cells uh, or potentially uh, drugs that prevent uh, memory B cell reconstitution because we think the memory B cell is the cell that's driving MS. Uh, and the next big thing is combination therapies, you know, uh, trying neuroprotection add-ons, trying remodernation add-ons and neurorestoration add-ons. And there's a whole trance of research uh, emerging, both from academia and from industry, of potential add-on treatments to try and restore function in people with multiple sclerosis. So that's what's going forward. And then the uh, the other thing is we're going to we're seeing a massive change in the way we manage MS. So there's lots of um, new systems uh, emerging for monitoring and managing MS going forward, using e-health, for example. So there's lots happening. It's an exciting time to be in MS research.